I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Supernatural. Here at Goop, we've never been shy about talking dirty, particularly when it comes to the chemicals often used in conventional cleaning products. These are products that we spread all around us as we spray, wipe, and scrub, and sometimes we end up inhaling them. Luckily, they're super natural. Their cleaning solutions rely on essential oils and powerful plant-based ingredients to get the job done. And when I say powerful, I mean that their starter kit, which includes four of their concentrates, is extremely effective at cleaning up countertop spills, wiping little fingerprints off of bathroom mirrors, and scrubbing the occasional mud footprints from our floors. Get your hands on Supernatural at supernatural.com and receive $10 off your first starter kit using code GOOP at checkout. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. I'll be interviewing some people who've had a profound influence on our culture, and you'll also hear a lot from Elise Lunin, who is my right hand at Goop. I learn a lot from the guests she talks with and take away something tangible from every single episode. Our guest today is Mary Beard, who, for the Brits among you, will need little in the way of an introduction. Mary is a professor of classics at the University of Cambridge, as well as the author of several books, including Women in Power and How Do We Look? Although Mary is a famous historian, she's often in the middle of the global conversation around gender roles and women in power. Elise met Mary on a trip to London at the end of September during a particularly charged cultural moment in the U.S. They talked about how and why women have been silenced throughout history and the different ways we might speak up now. It goes without saying that I think it's very cheering to to hear women who often felt they didn't have a way of making their voices heard and, and saying what had happened to them of doing that. But then the question is how you how you turn that into action and how you stop it you know because my bigger ambition than uh, than simply hearing the women's voices important as that is is that men just don't do this before we get to mary let's talk about one of our partners you know those days when you just can't seem to peel yourself out of bed If you've been listening to the Goop podcast, you'll know that I've been trying to fit more meaningful activities with my kids into our weekends, but we're typically slow to motivate on Saturdays and Sundays, and I don't necessarily want to give that up. I'm not into overscheduling, and I really love those laid-back mornings when our boys and cats pile into our bed and just hang out. The company is good, for sure, but the bed makes a real difference. Avocado Green Mattress is handmade right here in California, and it's the best bed around for a snuggle session. It's super comfortable, but beyond that, the mattress is made really thoughtfully. Avocado has traded out flame retardants, synthetic foams, and chemical adhesives. Instead, for example, they use New Zealand wool, organic cotton, natural latex rubber, and recycled steel coils. Chances are, if it's better for the planet, it's probably better for us, too. Log on to avocadogreenmattress.com to get yours and take an extra $175 off on any mattress by using code GOOP175 at checkout. 
At the end of today's conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question on your mind, just drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Okay, let's get to Elise and Mary Beard. To say that this is that I'm excited you're here is an understatement. This is maybe the biggest coup on the <laughs> podcast to date. You are a hero to women here and in the United States. It's interesting. I was at Stanford talking to a professor who cited you in his book, and I was like, "Oh, do you know her?" And um, he was like, "God, no! I wish." And I was like, "If I got her on the podcast, would you be impressed?" And he said, <laughs> "I would." die of envy so well thank you very much here we are it's extremely (laughs) flattering and it's kind of particularly odd for me because um you know here I am at 63 and 10 years ago nobody would have said that about (laughs) me (laughs) so it's kind of strange bit of sort of mini celebrity in later life yeah no well incredibly well deserved we need more heroes like you and you're so fascinating to me because obviously you primarily talk about the classics and yet you are in the middle of this conversation about women in power and current events, particularly what's happening in the United States. This will come out in a few weeks, but last night was Kavanaugh. So it's interesting to, to be sitting here with you. Uh, who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks? Yeah. I mean, it's, Even uh, today, who knows yeah, what's going to happen? No, right. So let's go back to the beginning and let's talk about Homer and sort of the first example of women being silenced in the first significant text. Well, the first written example of women being silenced in Western culture, at least, comes in Homer's Odyssey. I'm sure women have always been being silenced, but the first time it gets written down is in the 8th century BC, or at least transmitted because Homer technically didn't write and it's at the very beginning of Homer's Odyssey. Uh, and I've read the Odyssey you know, many times. I mean, I, was, I read the Odyssey at high school. Uh, but this was an incident that I'd never noticed, actually, mm-hmm. until I suppose about 10, 15 years ago when I was you know, rereading Homer. And I came across this moment, the beginning of the first book of the Odyssey, when Penelope the faithful wife of Odysseus is waiting at home for Odysseus to return from the Trojan War. And in fact, Odysseus is going to take a very long time to come back from the Trojan War because he's held up largely by women uh, on on the way. Of course. As they do. And Penelope's at home and she is bringing up uh, their son, Telemachus, uh, who at this stage is a bit of a sort of wet-behind-the-ears teenager. Uh, Penelope comes down one day from her room in the upper quarters, the women's quarters of the house, and she finds the bard there singing. And he's singing a very sad song about what a terrible time the heroes, Greek heroes from Troy, are having tried to get home, including Odysseus. And Penelope quite reasonably says, oh, for heaven's sake, couldn't you play something a bit more cheerful? Uh, And this teenager, Telemachus, is next to her, And he says, Mother, shut up. Speech is man's business. Back upstairs. And she goes. And I thought, how many times have I read this and not noticed that? Mm -hmm. And what seemed to me so important about, about it was not just that that incident happens, 
which, I mean, I think you know quite a lot of women even today have experienced similar. Um, it's that somehow in the plot of the Odyssey, as this boy Telemachus grows up, what you see is that the process of becoming a man demands you shut your mother up. Mm-hmm. Isn't that <laughs> amazing? So you know, it's not only that he's being, he's not being rude. This is his maturation. Mm-hmm. And I thought, heavens, that that's not stopped. And you know, I'm, don't for a minute think that um, the you know Western culture inherits you know everything from the Greeks and the Romans. You know, thank God it doesn't. You know, it's got it's got much more wide ancestry than that, much more diverse. But still, those moments in classical literature remain important. Mm-hmm. And that one, I think, sort of does sum up. Yeah. Women's silence. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, I, as well as I think every, probably almost every high school student read it many times. I never noticed. And so it's so, it's interesting. It's either, obviously, he's either remarking on something in the culture or he's codifying something. But the programming persists, right? That we would all just accept that. Yeah, and and sort of. What was amazing to me was I didn't, hadn't, noticed somehow as if as if it had become naturalized it's not natural but it can becomes treated as natural <laughs> interestingly someone pointed out to me the other day that engels noticed it mm. when he was writing the founding works of uh, um of communist theory engels did notice interesting <laughs> yeah and then it it's obviously just a single example of a literary and artistic tradition that goes on for Till today, till today, and we, again, we, we simply, I think, don't see how striking it is because we're surrounded by it, mm-hmm. and the myths that we still inherit from Greeks and Romans, mm-hmm. um, they reenact that that sort of silencing all the time. And a poor Philomela, who is raped by the nasty King Tereus, and what does he do? He cuts her tongue out so she can't tell the story. She turns out to be resourceful and she weaves the story into her tapestry so she does manage to denounce the rapist. Mm-hmm. And then Shakespeare takes it up in Titus Andronicus and his rape victim has her tongue cut out and her hands cut off. So she can't do that. And she has to put a stick in her mouth and scratch the story in the dust. <laughs> so women have always wanted to speak. And why have men been so effective at silencing them? It's, that is an extraordinarily difficult question. I mean, the why <laughs> questions are always difficult. You can see that they have. Yeah. And you can see that uh, gender Gender roles and gender differences grew up in some ways quite strongly formulated around voice or silence. So the the male is the public speaker, the male is the person who is outside the home, the male is the person who speaks with authority versus the silent, nurturing, homebound woman. Mm-hmm. Now, I think when you get to the the big why questions they're all the answers are always likely fantasy answers because of course we don't know but i i suppose one of the things that i've come more and more to to think is that uh, oppressive regimes whether it's racism or patriarchy or whatever uh 
they're actually terrified of those they oppress. Mm -hmm. Oppressors are not people who never look back and don't worry. They actually know what the deal is and they know that, in a sense, they're living in danger. It's certainly true in um, apartheid South Africa, for Mm -hmm. example. And I think in some ways I kind of see the, the active silencing of women as part of kind of the patriarchy's defense of itself. Of course. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, you see it you see it obviously in politics in America right now. I mean, you see it all over the world. You to to you are a woman of power who speaks out and people attempt to silence you. They've said terrible things mm-hmm. to you. They've threatened your livelihood. They've said really disgusting mm-hmm. um things to you. So on a personal level, why why do you think that you're so threatening? Because uh, I'm a woman who does speak. And mm-hmm. I think when I first became engaged in social media and discovered its its <laughs> seedier sides, so I mean, actually I think on balance I've got more out of social media than I've lost, but otherwise I wouldn't go on with it, would I? Uh, I used to think that what people were objecting to was what I had said, you know. I, so I speak out in favour of migration, of mm-hmm. immigration, um, and get huge amounts of really vile threats in relation to that. And my first instinct was to think, oh, it's because people disagreed with me on migration. And, of course, in part that's true, but I came to see more what they disagreed with, was what they objected to, was that I was speaking. Mm -hmm. And, interestingly, they used some of the absolute standard clichés of Greek myth, Um, even though I'm sure many of the people writing these appalling tweets had, had no clue that they were reflecting this. So they would say, I'm going to come and cut your tongue out. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to cut your head off and rape it. Now, and you think, what? You know, what kind of twisted person actually sits down late at night and writes that? But one thing you can see is that they're writing within that tradition of the silencing of women that goes back at least to antiquity. I mean, I don't suspect the Greeks and Romans didn't invent it either. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to blame them, but. So you, we're still we're still thinking with and using those stereotypes, mm-hmm. and even even when, even when you know we couldn't we couldn't identify them as right. ancient stereotypes. It's so interesting. I mean, social media is that we could talk about that for probably fifteen hours, but that and it's not anonymous, which I think is so interesting. Whereas comment boards are, but that people feel comfortable lashing out and they're so triggered like the emotional response is so interesting yeah i mean i've i find it more interesting than i imagined or i think quite a lot of people who just read a little bit about the you know the appalling stuff that is said and things how could you how could you engage with this Mm -hmm. and i suppose i've come to the conclusion that uh, there are some really very nasty people out there Mm -hmm. i'm sure there are but I think a lot of the people who are writing sort of indistinguishably nasty stuff you know, are probably sad and lonely mm-hmm. and disinhibited. They've had too much to drink and 
And that's when they lash out. And what, of course, is interesting is that the vocabulary and the ideology with which they lash out is you know, somewhere on the borders between sexism and misogyny. Mm-hmm. As if somehow uh, the frustration of those people who I think, I mean, are more sad than bad, uh, their frustration takes the form of that standard form of of misogynist discourse. It's kind of misogyny gives men a voice. Mm -hmm. And so are most of your detractors and the people who are, I guess, in pain, are they primarily men or are you seeing it from women as well? You never quite know, do you? Yeah. Uh, You never quite know on Twitter because you can't entirely be certain that the person is who the Twitter handle purports them to be. I'm sure just because looking at people who have been outed, I'm sure that there are some women in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my my impression is that most of them are men and that men and women are adopting the rhetoric of misogyny in order to do it. Yeah. So, so interesting. I mean, we definitely, at Goop, we are lightning rod for trolls. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to me that people choose to spend their time on that yeah. instead of, you know, if someone disagrees with you on immigration, and clearly it's probably not the issue, but like, look away. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it's interesting how. Or, or discuss. Yeah. Then I, I mean, I think there is a problem with Twitter because I think it is quite hard, even in 280 characters, to discuss something. And, right. And so it, even for people who, you know, want to use it as kind of in as nuanced a way as possible, it still becomes a series of assertions. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't produce yeah. good arguments but you know I, I i think also i think part of what underlies it and this would go for men and women is the kind of false democratization that was promised by it i mean i think that mm. you know twitter was going to be how we ordinary people communicated with those in power no well actually that isn't how we ordinary people, you know, communicate with those in power. Those in power don't read our tweets. Right. And they certainly don't reply to them. Uh, and so this kind of sense that this was a great leveller, that Twitter was a leveller. You know, it's not a leveller. If you've got three followers and you're sitting there saying, I want to cut your tongue out, mm-hmm. you're not on, you're, you're, you're not playing the same right. playing field as someone who's got two million. No, absolutely. So looking at, using sort of the Kavanaugh trial as an interesting example of the culture in America right now, women have been and men have been coming out saying, we believe her. And I think what's what's emerged after this, not even trial, but this, no, it's, yeah. it's so weird. The yeah. whole thing was so strange, but was, it's not that these guys don't believe her. They don't care. So how do you, which I think is really interesting. Well, it's another example of, the women's voice being ignored in an even more fundamental way, mm-hmm. actually, that you, know, you, you might be speaking the truth, but it doesn't matter yeah. to me. Exactly. And it, I mean, one of the things that I suggested in my book, and I think it does go back to also a very long way, is that women have always somehow been able to claim a little bit of public territory in talking about women's interests, women's mm-hmm. complaints. Um, you know, rape victims in antiquity 
as the story of Philomena and trying to weave it into her tapestry, they, they somehow do have a little legitimate place to speak and to denounce, but it never ends up mattering very much. Mm-hmm. Um, except in a few. Um, there are a few examples, and I think this is a, a, a very strange underbelly of Roman culture, where the rape of a woman leads to dramatic social and political change. So uh, you you have the early monarchy in Rome, um, the early monarchy, as they always do, and at least in the stories, the early monarchy turns into a dreadful tyranny. One of the tyrants, male relatives, rapes a virtuous woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, She she actually puts up with it Mm -hmm. because he says, if you don't, I will kill you and that slave over there and I'll leave your bodies out and I will say you're having an affair with the slave. And within, I hate to underline this, within Roman ideology that was something she would not face. So she gives in to the guy. She then calls her male relatives. She denounces what happens. She kills herself Mm. and they overthrow the tyranny. Wow. <laughs> so, so and, you know, now there's a lot going on in that story and it certainly is in some way a female voice leading to to change. Yeah. It's just she doesn't live to see it. Totally. And it's interesting when you look at what's happening in America and obviously we elected Trump despite sort of what he has he's misogynistic, clearly articulated misogynistic tendencies. But you look at it, if you look at Me Too and you look at the sort of the rising wrath of women and how triggering yesterday was for mm. almost every single person I know, because mm. we've all experienced, yeah. Yeah. I'd say, a vast majority. I certainly had that experience yeah. in high school. Yeah. I know you yeah. had that experience. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, and it's now a question, I think, of how we, you know, how we channel it. I mean, I, you know, it goes without saying that. I think is very cheering to to hear women who often felt they didn't have a way mm-hmm. of making their voices heard and, and saying what had happened to them of doing that. But then the question is how you how you turn that into action, yeah, and how you stop it. You know, because <laughs> my bigger ambition than uh, than simply hearing the women's voices, important as that is, is that men just don't do this mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, when I say men of course we mean some men yeah. you know, and I think uh, tarring all men with exactly the same brush here is um, is completely unjust but it is how do you stop them and how do you empower the women to say right at the time mm-hmm. you know put your hand away sunshine mm-hmm. you know no you know actually no right and I think it's very hard to to see quite how you get to the place you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, partly because, you know, what is legitimating this behaviour? Well, you know, ultimately it's the power structure which gives men the power. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if if there were more than 10% women directors in major Hollywood movies, um, then the casting couch would look very different. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bigger power infrastructure problem. Do you think that we're hearing I know when we're in you're in the middle of a historic moment and you you it's hard to understand or even 
guess what's going to happen. Do you think these are sort of the dying gasps? It's, is this like getting a, ter- a really intensive facial and like it's all coming out? And isn't it hard to say? Yeah. Isn't it? That it's that you know, sometimes I kind of wake up and I think, right, you know, this is, you know, we are living through the end of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's, everything's been outed, game's over, the world's going to change. And that started, um, you know, in, in very publicly um, last year, and it is now going on, and it's, you know, put it this way, victory's within our grasp, mm-hmm. and the grasp of all decent guys. Sometimes I get up and I think, you know, in the end, are we going to look back at this as a sort of, you know, a glorious moment that didn't go anywhere? Mm-hmm. And I hope that's not the case. But if one wants to run with that idea, you know, you say, look, we will see some trials in due course, but there won't be level playing field trials. There'll be trials in which men, the, the, the men who are facing the allegations will have access to the most expensive, smartest, mm-hmm. dirtiest lawyers they can possibly buy. Mm-hmm. And whether they're guilty or innocent, and some of them may be innocent, you have to accept that as a, as a possibility, um, they will get off. And somehow things will just go back to a version of what they were before. I suppose I think I doubt they'll ever quite go back mm-hmm. to what they were before. I mean, in some ways, I, I I kind of feel that one's got to think about the men's stories too, not because I want them to come out and be given a chance to drown out the voices of women by telling their self-exculpatory narratives. I'm not, I'm not meaning that, but I, I found myself thinking that when you read the... You know, many of the denunciations that women made. And then you thought, well, I wonder what the men did that evening. You know, mm-hmm. you know, here you are, you've, you know, you've just pushed some woman who clearly doesn't want to, you know, up against a shower and masturbate it all over her. When you go home, what do you think about yourself? And I, mean, I suppose I think it's a bit like, you know, Twitter trolls, really. Some of them probably are very nasty and they kind of rubbed their hands and thought that was another victory for me, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I also suspect that quite a lot of them go home and they think they don't feel good about themselves. Right. You know, when you've done that and you go home at night, and let's say you face your wife, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think about yourself? You feel awful. And you probably cover it up, you obfuscate, you invent a narrative, and we know the kind of narratives they invent. She was really gagging for it. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and somehow I think that in those guys who may well be in the majority. I think we ought to call out their stories. We ought to say, look, there's a narrative here you're not listening to. You know, you've got, you got, you have a self-serving story about why that was okay. It doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Tell yourself the other story. We'll come back to Elise and Mary Beard in a second. Let's talk about one of our partners first. The Goop brand was built on the concept of making better choices, including which creams, oils, and fragrances we use to cleanse our faces and bodies. But what about all the sprays, wipes, and cleaning products we regularly use around the house? A lot of the conventional stuff is loaded with chemicals that are actually not necessary for these products to do their jobs. That's where Supernatural comes in. 
Their effective cleaning sprays are flipping the industry on its head, one conscious concentrate at a time. Not only is every product made using potent plant and mineral-based ingredients, they actually work without any toxic offenders. What this means is that cleaning day has become a much more refreshing, even pleasant experience. This stuff leaves the whole house smelling subtly of essential oils like fir, basil, and lavender. And as a mom, I don't really have to sweat the small stuff, like my kid eating a handful of cereal off the floor or getting their sticky fingers on the mirrors. You can try all four of their formulas with a Supernatural starter kit and get $10 off using code GOOP on Supernatural.com. The other day, we had a nutritional biochemist visit the Goop office, as one does, and our team asked her for a holiday hack. Rather than trying to limit indulgences around this time of year, she said to instead focus on adding one meal a week that's made with real food, something that's good for you. Simple to buy into, right? But it's not always easy during the rush of the holidays. Gobble's meal prep service makes it doable, though. They do all the work for you. Gobble selects the quality ingredients, and they take care of all peeling, chopping, and marinating. Everything gets delivered in one box straight to your doorstep, and their meals can be cooked and ready to go in just 15 minutes, all in one pan. With Gobble's wide mix of options and flavors, you don't feel like you're eating a regular meal delivery service, and there is a little something for everyone. My family has been into Gobble for a while now, but I just started sharing it with friends. Gobble makes an unexpectedly good gift, especially for people who already seem to have everything. It's kind of like giving the gift of time and a home-cooked meal all in one. Whether you want to try out Gobble yourself or send their kits to someone on your holiday list, Gobble is giving you $50 off the first box you order. Just head to gobble.com backslash goop. Back to Elise's chat with Mary Beard. And so going back to Homer, going back to these sort of unconscious program ways that we have, do you think it's as simple as just being aware of it and then changing the conversation? (laughs) Or do you think, and that we can just course correct as we have on other things throughout history? Or do you think it's more insidious? I think awareness helps. Yeah. Whether it's sufficient, I just don't know. I mean, you know, I think... you know, putting my academic hat on here, the justification for thinking about this in terms of the distant past, and um, it is about consciousness raising here. Mm-hmm. Is ste- is step one? It's certainly step one. Whether you know step one is enough, or how long it will take, you know, I, and whether we need more. And you know, realistically, I think there's you know there, there has to be changes in the culture mm-hmm. of power um, though I do think I, I do think just hearing language differently rethinking what what we all say to each other mm-hmm. and seeing how it's how the things we don't think about are just completely embedded in uh, that in one very stereotypical narrative about 
agenda. And you know, the obvious example that is easy for everybody to see is the word ambitious. You know, mm-hmm. there is nothing in the word ambitious that has ostensibly any gendering to it at all. It is a gender neutral in the dictionary adjective, right? Mm-hmm. Except we know it's not a gender neutral adjective in usage. If you talk about a man being ambitious, you think he's you know, thrusting, going places on the make great, you know, it's going to make a difference. A born leader, ambitious. You say it about a woman and you think she's not to be trusted, she's manipulative, she's going to kind of tread on anybody else on her way to the top. Mm-hmm. It means something different. And quite often I, when I'm talking about things like this with my students, because you can't hardly read Latin and Greek literature without this kind of issue coming up, um, you know, their eyes open. Mm-hmm. And once you've seen that about the word, yeah, you can't ever go back. Exactly. It's like shrew, yeah, whining, yeah. shrill, yes. grading. Yeah. And you know, I think in English also the word deep yeah. is really interesting because it is both a voice which is deep in tone mm-hmm. and it's deep in terms of profound, authoritative, thoughtful. Huh? So, you know, why do women politicians learn or many of them try to, um, to bring their voices down. Right. Thatcher so, did voice training, right? Yeah, yeah. Thatcher, and it, Thatcher did voice training and it's absolutely fascinating if you go and look at early videos of Thatcher speeches. She has a very high timbre of voice and it comes down to be husky and basically male. Mm. And you talk, I know, in Women in Power about... Clinton and Merkel, you know, there's that amazing photo of the two of them embracing and their black pantsuits with their kitten heels and their very similar haircuts, which is similar to my own. And I'm often confused for even this morning, someone called me a sir. Do you think it's important for women to and even this is so triggering again, like I have short hair, like embrace their feminine. Like, do you think they need to break that? Yes. And you look at those pictures of particularly that one of Clinton and Merkel in their identical pantsuits. And, you know, first of all, you start to think, well, that's a very, very sensible outfit, really, for, you know, a woman who's, you know, rushing all over the world, catching one train on plane after the next. And then you think, yeah, but it's also the closest thing that they can wear to make them look like men. Mm -hmm. And it's also the closest thing they can have to say, you know, I'm not I'm not an appendage. I'm not, you know, I'm not a clothes horse. I'm not the president's wife any longer. I'm going to be president, if only. But then you kind of think, well, so what do I want here? Mm-hmm. You know, do, do I want women to uh, embrace their femininity and turn femininity into power so that we'll all be kind of consigned to spending hours in the morning getting our hair straight so that we look like a powerful woman. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you then feel a bit more iffy about that. I mean, I think some politicians have managed, although I don't like Thatcher at all, uh, they did in some respects. I think she managed to um, to reclaim some female appendages as items of power, I mean, very famously, her handbag. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing, you know, apart from you know, nice, fashionable man bags, men handbag is a woman's item, and even when men have handbags, you don't call them handbags. Uh, she m- made the handbag her trademark, 
how consciously or not, I don't know. But she also turned it into something which was a weapon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the British press in the years of Thatcher, you know, the word to handbag somebody became, um, you know, do them over, you know, get your own way, you mm-hmm. know. Heaven, she's going to handbag me. <laughs> now, part of that might have been, of course, as these things always go two ways, a, you know, a certain patronising critique of mm-hmm. Thatcher's methods. I think also in some ways what she was doing was saying, right, OK, m- m- you know, my appendages, my accessories, they're powerful too. Yeah. I think, too, in this perception of women, and this is something that Gwyneth talks about a lot, is this idea of how one-dimensional people expect women to be. So you can be smart, but you can't also be beautiful. And you can be maternal, but you can't also be sexual. And there is this aversion to this sort of idea. Like, they all have to be battle axes, right? If they're going to be... It's so... And, strange. And we don't have that um, vision of men in power. Now, to be fair, I suppose that there are some bits of, bits of British politics, and I suspect um, American politics too, where you can look at a lineup of blokes and you do think, you know, they're all wearing exactly the same suit. And mm-hmm. But I think that there is a, there is a, a whole array of different ways of being powerful mm-hmm. if you're a man. And for women, there's a whole array of ways of not being powerful. Mm-hmm. So where, how are we going to find more role models of power? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if I did, I'd write about it. You know, I'd share it. I wouldn't keep it to myself. Looking back at what, what has worked for me, mm-hmm. because... I don't find it difficult to talk now. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm partly very lucky. But I think what what was the real difference that struck me? And it was at a certain point, after years and years, people think that I've always been able to do this, years and years of my early career, I could denote my mouth. I went to seminars and the guy spoke and I didn't. Mm. Um, so it's not that somehow I was born with the gift of the gap. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think that I, at a certain point... And this was when I knew I'd turned the corner, and I don't know how. I listened to myself, and I listened to kind of what I was saying, and I thought, that's me speaking. I, I'm he- In my head, I'm hearing me. And I suppose what, why I feel slightly anxious about the Clinton-Merkel pantsuits is, you know, OK, maybe their choice, but actually, at some level, it's not just that they are looking as close to being men as they can be, they're sort of acting. That they're playing the role of being politician. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was much younger, I was playing at the role of being... I was copying the guys when mm. I wanted to intervene, when I wanted to give a lecture, when I was being an academic. I was trying to do... I was trying to get the rhetoric right. And the rhetoric I was trying to get right and to ape was guys' rhetoric. Mm. And I don't know what changed. I simply don't know. But at a certain point, I thought, and I I see it when I see myself, uh, say, on television. I think for better or worse, you know, I might have been talking rubbish there, but at least it was me. Mm. And I think a lot of women don't hear themselves when they hear themselves speak. So finally, and I know you have sort of famously befriended and gone on to mentor 
who yeah. people who have trolled you on Twitter. Was that always your instinct to sort of respond, or did you were you immediately appalled? Like, how did you? When it first happened to me, I did what everybody tells you to do, which is don't respond, block them. Mm-hmm. I, I think everybody has to make their own mind up about how to deal with this. I don't think there's, I don't think it's one size fits all. But for me, that started to make me feel very uncomfortable. So I thought this is another way of silencing women. Mm-hmm. And I thought that you know, when they're nasty to you, what do you, what are you supposed to do? Shut up. You know, this is like having, you know, the bullies in the, you know, in the playground at school being left in charge and telling the kids who are being bullied, you know, to, to, you know, to leave the bullies in charge of the, in charge of the game. Mm-hmm. Or we don't do that. And that combined with a, a sort of rather ingrained academic sense that when people say things you don't agree with you, you um, tend to um, say, I'm sorry, I don't agree. I think I'd like to see it this way. Uh, I felt much more comfortable when I said, that's simply not right. Mm. You know, I suggest you take that tweet down. You know? Yeah. And that's so profound that, you know, and, and we feel that too. Obviously, so many, the and, and people who love you aren't necessarily like on Twitter late at night trolling or positively <laughs> trolling, right? So it's so easy to feel bullied. And we've yeah. certainly felt that at moments in our history mm-hmm. at Goop. And Gwyneth is so strong in saying like, no, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I We will continue to move on yeah. and push yeah. the conversation. Yeah. And I don't think that one can, one probably doesn't manage it 100% of the time, you know, mm-hmm. just occasionally. You know, you've had a really, really long day. You come home and you stupidly put your phone on and and you see just a barrage and it feels like you're being hit. It just mm-hmm. does sometimes feel that, you know, it's one blow off to the next. Mm-hmm. And uh, just occasionally, I just, you know, that just really gets to me, but only occasionally now. Good. You, I, I am in awe. Thank you for being here. <laughs> well, Keep going. You. I think you, you are a model of a woman in power for all of us. And I can't wait to see what comes next. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Mary Beard today. I found Mary's perspective on power struggles really interesting. And that might have been the most excited I've heard Elise get on this podcast so far. You can follow Mary on Twitter at WMaryBeard and check out her latest book, How Do We Look? Now let's get to today's AMA. What's the last book you read and loved? Oh my God, this is so nerdy. I read a book on (laughs) leadership called Shakti Leadership. It's about embracing the feminine energy as a leader. Yeah, that's embarrassing, but that's, that's what I read. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this episode of the Goop Podcast. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.